Down to Earth with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is News Talk. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg, News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. On the show today, former broadcaster and politician Ivan Yates on how green his life really is. And it's official. We're in the midst of a global mass extinction event. We'll explore what this really means with Pulitzer Prize winning author Elizabeth Colbert and Fintan Kelly of the Irish Environmental Network. Of course, we'd also love to hear from you. Are you freaking out about extinction like I am? You can email us at downtoearth at newstalk.com. So let's head down to earth. And we'll begin with this. Yes, it's our brand new weekly feature we're calling The Weekly Planet with Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust in the UK and a former colleague of mine from our days with Friends of the Earth Europe, Mr. Craig Bennett. Hi, Craig. Welcome to the show. Hi, Carla. Great to be joining you. Great to have you. Tell me what happened this week on our planet, Craig. Well, Carla, I've been looking at all the kind of news this week across kind of green issues, and I've boiled it down to, I think, three big stories that I think we should talk about this week. So the first, I mean, Cara, how many times have you and I been told over the years that actually it's all this kind of green stuff that's making energy bills expensive? And yet, really interesting, some uh, significant analysis this week from a very highly respected uh, think tank in the UK called Carbon Brief that has actually analysed it and looked at, looked at UK energy bills and said actually cutting green measures, so getting rid of sort of government policies to put in insulation and renewable energy and so on, has actually added two and a half billion pounds to UK energy bills over the last decade. Uh, I mean, famously, when David Cameron was prime minister of the UK, uh, first of all, he was all kind of very enthusiastic about green measures. And then, uh, pardon my language, but he said he was quoted as saying, we've got to cut the green crap from, from these uh, policies to, to reduce energy bills. But this analysis now says that that ended up costing people uh, around £1,000 a year in energy bills more. And right across the Western world at the moment, of course, we're seeing these energy bills rising. But it's actually rising, Carl, of course, because of the cost of fossil fuels, not the cost of green energy. Yeah, your situation in the UK is a little bit different than ours when it comes to climate policy, because the UK were really leaders in climate policy when they were part of the EU. They were really driving uh, climate negotiations at the United Nations. Uh, and, and now it looks like you're kind of you're turning back against those climate policies and things are changing. Whereas here in Ireland, we're we're in a situation where we've had kind of poor climate policies until this government. And now we have the Greens in government and and we're seeing kind of more ambitious climate policy than ever. And yet we're getting the same kind of narrative. So let's have a listen to our Kerry TD, Michael Healy Ray, what he had to say recently about this in the Dáil. The government policy has resulted in fewer Irish jobs, less Irish fuel, higher Irish prices, potential blackouts and a massive knock on to inflation in general. Sound familiar to you, Craig? Absolutely. I've heard this so many times before. I mean, just a few years ago in the UK, there was a big battle that, as you know, Carl, I got really involved in as to whether we should allow fracking or not. And there were some people saying, you know, if only we could d- get on with fracking, actually, that would allow the UK to find more gas and so on. But it was a, and that would reduce energy bills. But that was a complete nonsense, in my view. You know, if you're part of the international energy market, the amount of sort of gas the likes of the UK or Ireland would have to produce 
would be enormous if it was going to make any difference to uh, energy global energy prices. I mean, you'd have to cover the whole of the UK and Ireland with frack pads if that was going to happen uh, to make any difference at all. And really, the big thing that makes a difference is getting that energy insulation into our homes and obviously producing renewable energy here in the UK and Ireland as well. That's the thing that would make a real difference. Uh, but there's still this kind of narrative that somehow it's the green policies that that make a, a difference to energy costs. and But then it's just a nonsense. Yeah, I was really sub- surprised actually this week, the European Court of Auditors released a report saying that 15 EU member states are giving more subsidies to fossil fuels than to renewable energy still in 2020, like five years after we signed the Paris Climate Agreement. And Ireland is one of those 15. So we're actually subsidizing fossil fuels a lot more than renewables and yet blaming renewables. Some people are blaming renewables for the rising prices. But I'd be interested in, th- in knowing what you think are the obstacles to people doing these kind of energy insulations because studies here from the University College Cork are showing that even people who qualify for the kind of free upgrades like insulation and and those kind of energy upgrades, only about 8% of the ones surveyed are actually availing of them. So it's not just a, a cost thing here. What do you think about that? No, I think that's absolutely right. We need to understand that better. I mean, there's I would say it sort of works on different levels. First of all, there's a sort of political cultural block, which is, let's face it, you know, politicians love to put on those high-vis jackets and go and open something with a a cut of ribbon or something. And actually, big bits of energy kit uh, lend themselves to photo opportunities, whereas putting insulation in thousands of houses across thousands of streets don't so much. So I think that's a problem from the political point of view. But from an individual point of view, you know, it's obviously quite a lot of hassle to have people come in your house, put insulation, you have to clear your loft, whatever it is, or to change your windows. Uh, Even if it can be made as cheap as and convenient as possible, people still kind of don't like that. And the research that has been done does suggest people are more likely to do it if you kind of do it street by street. So if the whole house is going through, uh, the whole street is going through a retrofit on energy efficiency, then people are more likely to participate and sort of keep up with their neighbours on making sure that their houses are well insulated, for example. So I think those are the kind of policies when you take a whole kind of street street approach uh, and make it as easy and efficient and cheap as possible for people to get that insulation in place. That's the thing that will really make a difference. So peer pressure works every time. What do you have for me next, Craig? Well, the next one is is an issue that sort of I've been sort of following for many years, and I know you have as well, Carla, but I don't think receives nearly as much attention as it should. It's like one of those issues where we've become so used to it, we've become almost sort of, uh, 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 we just ignore it. And it is the huge cumulative impact of exposure of so many sort of synthetic chemicals in the environment on our health. You know, and there was a big report, New Scientist, this week that was pulling together the evidence on this in, in, a, in a new area of research and academic study, which is now being called exposomics. So that's looking at everything that we're exposed to throughout our lives and how it links with our effects on human health. And, you know, it's estimated now that between nine and 12 million people die prematurely every year globally through the cumulative effect of exposures to air and water pollution, heavy metals, synthetic chemicals, workplace carcinogens, and particulates. You've got to put this in perspective, Carl. I mean, this is way more uh, people than have died, sadly, from the uh, coronavirus pandemic. So I find myself thinking time and again, you know, obviously governments have reacted and, and put in very stark measures in dealing with COVID 
And many of us might think, well, widely so, that's saving lives. But why is it that we're so bad at dealing with things like air pollution, water pollution, and actually these cumulative effects of, of, of all forms of heavy metals and particulates in our environment, when the evidence is already really clear that they're damaging our health. But actually, what's really scary is our understanding of the uh, impact of these on our health over time. And the fact that they're probably underpinning a lot of the rise in certain cancers, for example, is something that's just not really fully understood by scientists at the moment. Yeah, 9 to 12 million people is shocking. I and mean, I think we've heard about the deaths that are caused by air pollution. But when you add in what might be causing cancers via water pollution or other chemicals, that that is astounding. I grew up in New Orleans and uh, the tap water there, by the time it came to our taps, it had gone through 10 major cities down the Mississippi River, all the way from Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, Arkansas, and then eventually ending up in Louisiana. And so by the time it reached our taps, it was full of pharmaceuticals and hormones and and all sorts of you know endocrine disruptors that do potentially cause cancer and and yet people were were drinking this like no problem and it, to me it's just shocking that even now we still have no way of really removing these kind of trace chemicals from our water system it is shocking and you know this some of the most recent research on this suggests that that upper figure of 12 million deaths each year globally because of the cumulative effect of these potentially harmful uh, environmental exposures actually represents around 20% of all deaths worldwide and a third of premature deaths uh, between people of the ages of 30 and 69. So this is a big deal, you know, it's a fifth of uh, global deaths are caused by this. And yet in many, many cases, it's just not understood what the impact is. I mean, a lot of the science to date has looked at the impact of one particular chemical on the body in a, over a particular period of time. But really, I think it's it's increasingly clear that what's impacting our health and, of course, the health of wildlife and the natural environment as well is actually the cumulative effect of many chemicals and how they interact together in our bodies and in the wild environment in ways that's just not understood. And, and you know, there's a real sense that we've got to kind of get our head around this and put a lot more effort in, into the research on it to properly understand the impact it's having. And my guess is, my sense is, and I, I, this is kind of a gut feeling, Cara, I think this is the kind of thing we're going to be talking about a lot more in 10, 15, 20 years time. I mean, maybe it's going to be even as big as talking about sort of climate change. I just think it's one of those issues that's creeping up the agenda and I just feel, I sense it, it's going to be a huge issue in the years to come when we kind of properly understand the impact that these synthetic chemicals are having on our lives. Yeah, I mean, we haven't joined the dots really between, you know, cancer and health and, and all of those issues and the possibility that it's actually the chemicals in our environment that might be contributing to some of these. But I think we do know that all of these chemicals are impacting wildlife. And of course, that's part of your job with Wildlife Trust would be would be looking at those things. So what are the risks to wildlife from these chemicals? Yeah. And if in, if when we talk about wildlife, that means, for example, fish populations, and then we end up eating that fish, you know, it comes back to us as humans as well. So it's a huge issue. But Cara, let me try and end uh, this week, give you my third big news story this week and try and make it a, a happy one. Uh, and it is that uh, explorers have discovered, scientists have discovered a what they call a pristine three kilometer long coral reef. Uh, at depths of 30 metres off the coast of Tahiti in French Polynesia. I mean, this is really significant. All the marine experts I've spoken to in the last week as this story emerged have been astonished. You know, you never normally expect coral reefs to be at that kind of depth. And so it's a whole kind of new type of coral reef 
uh, with amazing species of what they're calling rose corals that stretch over this this huge area in, in what's also called the kind of twilight zone at that kind of depth that's that's deeper quite a fair bit deeper than actually you normally find coral reefs and the reason i wanted to pluck this out and share this with you is it just uh, talks to that. I know it's a bit of a cliche that people say, well, uh, you, you know, we know the uh, the surface of Mars better than we know the oceans. But guess what? It's a cliche because it's true. Our knowledge of the oceans is really so poor at the moment. And, and the fact that we're in 2022 and scientists can find a whole new massive coral reef uh, with species of corals that they, they'd never previously understood, uh, uh, with all kinds of significant implications. I mean, you know, there might be uh, all sorts of cures for diseases in those corals. Uh, there might be all kinds of sort of things going on in the ecology that is just not understood at the moment. Of course, the sad issue is also, I mean, yes, it's really exciting to discover something new like this, but from the moment it's discovered, we've got to be thinking about how we protect it because we know how coral reefs are so threatened by climate change. Um, but isn't it exciting that at this, in this day and age, you can find a whole new ecosystem like this amazing coral reef? Yeah, I saw the footage of that on my Instagram, actually, and it was it was absolutely beautiful. It looked like a kind of a, a rose garden or, you know, a blooming flower garden underwater. I'd never seen anything like it. And at first, I was really excited by it. And, and they say there might be more of these in this kind of twilight zone that they haven't explored yet. But then my next reaction was, oh, oh no, don't show people this because then everybody's going to want to go there and we'll just destroy it just like we've been destroying you know the great barrier reef did you have that reaction at all that like let's keep these things a secret so they don't get ruined yeah i know it's it's really troubling isn't it it's so amazing to discover these new habitats and so on but you know that uh, the very first thing we have to do uh, almost even before we research them further is, is to figure out how we're going to protect them and keep them safe because we know that the impact we're having is humanity on the oceans at the moment both through global warming, through through plastics and other forms of pollution, and actually, yes, just people kind of visiting and, and sometimes touching coral reefs when it comes to tourism is a real concern. And, and given that this is in such a pristine condition, I mean, that's good news, but we've got to keep it so. I suppose the really interesting issue here is how many more of them are there? You know, I mean, this is this is one that's just been discovered, as I said, off the coast of Tahiti, which is really exciting. But are there many more coral reefs at this depth right around the world? Could well be. You'd expect that there probably are. You'd, it's, it's unlikely that this is going to be unique uh, in, this, in this one location. But then isn't that extraordinary just to discover what is essentially almost a new habitat in this day and age? And, and obviously, clearly a lot more research needed. Uh, but immediately we've got to think about how we can protect it because it will be uh, so much at risk. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll all be happy enough to just look at it on our Instagram feeds instead of actually all going there and, and having to see for ourselves. But thanks so much for the rundown of the Planet's Weekly Big News, Craig, and I'm looking forward to seeing what discoveries you surprise me with next week. Great. Let's speak next week. Absolutely. After the break, Pulitzer Prize winning author Elizabeth Colbert will explain the Earth's mass extinction event that's currently underway. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi. An asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better future for all. Listen, I don't what? think you understand the gravity of the situation. I'm trying to articulate it the best I can. I don't know. Madam what... President, this comment is what we call a planet killer. That is correct. Mm-hmm. So how certain is this? There's 100% certainty of impact. Please, don't say 100%. Can we just call it a potentially significant event? Yeah. Yes. But it isn't potentially going to happen. 
it is going to happen. Exactly. 99.78% to be exact. Oh, great. Okay, so it's not 100%. Well, scientists never like to say 100%. Call it 70% and let's just, let's move on. But it's not even close to 70%. You cannot go around saying to people that there's a 100% chance that they're going to die. You just heard a clip from Don't Look Up. That's the smash hit Netflix movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence. And it satires the the climate crisis as this giant asteroid that's about to hit our planet. But it appears that we have a new kind of metaphorical asteroid heading towards us. As scientists from the University of Hawaii and the Paris Natural History Museum have recently confirmed that the Earth's sixth mass extinction is happening right now with more than 13% of our planet's 2 million species already extinct. So what does that really mean and how certain can we be of that impact? Well, I'm really honored to be joined by the Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Sixth Extinction, Elizabeth Colbert, who's here to explain it to me. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. I first saw you in 2015 on stage with former U.S. Vice President Al Gore, and I was there to learn more about climate change. But there you were. You came up on stage and you started talking about this mass extinction event, which I had actually never heard of. And to be honest, your words have haunted me ever since. So for listeners who are as new to this concept as I was back then, maybe you could explain what is a mass extinction event? Well, a mass extinction event is is defined just as a period of time, a relatively short period of time in geological terms, though not necessarily in human terms, during which a large proportion of the planet species go extinct. That, so it just has that sort of functional definition. And there have been, a, a, according to the fossil record, Uh, five of these major mass extinctions over the last half a billion years, which is the period since complex life arose. And there is a fear or a great deal of evidence that we are, you know, on on the verge of the sixth, and this time we are are the cause of it. So that sums things up. So how bad is it, this one that we're experiencing now? Well, one of the issues that you have when you try to compare something that's happening right now with something that has happened over the last you know half a billion years is that you're comparing apples and oranges you're looking at the fossil record of the past and in the present you're looking at contemporary events for which we do not have the fossil record yet but scientists have have tried to do apples to apples comparisons by through various measures has that. And each time they do that, they they come up with the idea or fact that extinction rates, as we speak, are so high that if this continued uh, for, you know, 500 years or so, which is geologically speaking, you know, no time at all, um, we would reach mass extinction levels. So I, I think I've noticed in how the media has covered this a tiny bit. They haven't really covered it that much. But, you know, there's this perception that, oh, this is the sixth one. So, you know, we've had these before and maybe we can get through them. And Or on the other side of it, there's an assumption that extinction means extinction of the human race. But I mean, can you clarify that a little bit for people who aren't familiar with this idea? Well, I don't think that... Um you know when when a when a mass extinction happens it it radically alters life on earth and it it presumably one of the 
things that happens and once again you know no one knows because no one has really lived through one before um is you get these cascading effects so you know one species gets knocked out and that knocks out the species that depends on it for food let's say and so we really don't know exactly what the dynamics are but it's it's not something that uh one would expect any species including a very very clever ape like humans to get through unscathed how's that um but that does lead to the question of whether we are talking about the imminent demise of, of humanity and i i you know can't really speak to that except to say if you were you know if you were betting on a species that could survive a human caused mass extinction it, it probably would be humanity but but the distinction between extinction which really means the end of every you know breeding pair uh and a lot of suffering and loss you know i, th I think people do have to keep that in mind we do as you say people tend to jump right to humans are going extinct i i don't think the humans are going to extinct uh in the foreseeable future but um i think there could be a tremendous amount of dislocation so mass extinction my understanding is it means like loss of around 75 percent of species within some geological time period and the last one the fifth one that was the one that wiped out the dinosaurs and probably caused by an asteroid then in 2015 you write this book about this sixth mass extinction which presumably at the time was kind of not being talked about i'm just wondering what the the reaction to the book was at the time and what compelled you to write this quite shocking book really well i i i it's not my term it's not my idea by any stretch of the imagination and as i actually you know explain at the in the front of the book at the beginning of the book you know i i came, i came across this myself in the scientific literature and was also shocked but it was very much a part of the of the scientific literature that, you know, either the present, the current mass extinction, I mean, it, it's just another term you could say for the biodiversity crisis, which was, you know, already much discussed since probably the 80s, let's say. Um, so it was just a, a, an idea that perhaps hadn't, you know, filtered out to the public yet. And that was precisely the, the impetus for writing it, but it was very much present in the scientific literature. And did you get, you know, positive feedback or were you kind of dismissed like Rachel Carson maybe was initially or what was the initial reaction to your book? I, you know, can't really say what the reaction in scientific circles was, um, but I, I, the reaction that I got um, was, was quite positive. I mean, the book, um, you know, did, did, did well, I mean, just sold well and it, you know, it got won the Pulitzer Prize. So I, I can't complain about the reaction the book got. How's that? Yeah. Um, how do you feel now? We have we have new data out where scientists are saying, confirming that, yes, actually, we are in the midst of, of the sixth mass extinction, that perhaps we had been underestimating species extinction rates prior. But when you look at invertebrates and, and, and other species that, yes, it is actually happening. Uh, it, how do you feel now that like the, the proof is out there? Well, I, I'm going to be frank and say the proof was always out there. You know, I mean, it wasn't, once again, it wasn't like I was, it was already in the scientific literature. And yes, you can, you obviously have the issue, as I discussed before, that you're sort of comparing apples and oranges. And we have not yet done in 75% of the species on earth. That's 
you know, completely true. Um, but a mass extinction, most of these mass extinctions of the past, uh, with the possible exception of the fifth that you mentioned that was caused, presumably caused by an asteroid impact, um, you know, some people have said that what we're doing is most comparable to the really greatest crisis in the history of life that we know about, which was the, it's called the end Permian extinctions about 252 million years ago. So very, very long time ago. And people have tried to constrain how long that event lasted or took, I suppose. And it might've been, you know, 20,000 years or so. Um, so, you know, it's possible that we're just in the very, very earliest stages of this. And what will happen over the next 20,000 years is obviously extremely hard to predict. Um, but it's nevertheless was was obvious, you know, when I wrote the book, which was only um, about, oh, I guess it's eight years ago now, um, that these that extinction rates were extremely high against what's called uh, the background rate of extinction. Yeah. So let's talk about solutions. Do you think there are solutions? Are you are you hopeful that we could we could maybe solve this in some way? And and if so, how? Well, I don't think any of these problems are amenable to solution. You know, there that's a word that we use to mean we've you know completely reversed the situation. Let's say, um, and and this is just not you know it's not possible with a lot of the drivers of extinction, for example, you know, a big driver of extinction these days is that we've moved a lot of species around the world and some of them are predators that take out native species. Some of them are pathogens that take out native species. It's very hard to get those out of the system again. So I think that, you know, the problem that we have or one of the problems that we have here is that the drivers of this extinction event, which can all be traced, as I as I point out in the book, to one weedy species, as as one scientist puts it, which is humanity. There, it's not a it's not a single cause, and the at the root of all of these of all of the causes are, you know, our consumption habits and our. Uh, way of taking over the world and taking over resources that other species, you know, also uh, need. So it's very hard to imagine a quote unquote solution. Now, there are obviously things that we could be doing that will make the situation better or worse um, that we can talk about. Yeah. In your most recent book, Under a White Sky, I understand you talk about these kind of large scale techno fixes as as one part of the solution to clim- the climate crisis. So is is that something that you think is is part of where we'll have to go to address some of these issues? Well, I think the book uh, leaves that question very much open. Honestly, I don't think that they're presented as as solutions. They're presented as um, proposals that that people have put out there and research projects that people have put out there in a somewhat desperate effort to. Uh, you know, reverse some of the damage or mitigate some of the damage in the absence of, you know, our completely changing the way we live, which we show no evidence of of being ready to do. So uh, we've been watching billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Richard Branson lately all heading off into space to kind of test their limits with some notion that the human race is going to need a a life raft to escape environmental devastation here on Earth. So do you have any thoughts on on this kind of approach to the climate and biodiversity crisis? 
Well, I, I do have a response and it's, you know, I think it's, it's absurd. Um, you know, the conditions of life on earth are, there's a long list of conditions that we as humans need to live on earth. They're not met as far as we know, you know, anywhere in our solar system. Um, so I think that we have to admit really that we have one planet and we better take care of it. And the idea that you know, somehow going to Mars, which has no oxygen and no air pressure, just, you know, to start with things that humans need and would, without which you would, you know, be dead within seconds, um, it, that that's somehow going to save us from life on earth is, I mean, it's a horrific ver- vision of what life on earth is going to become, but I, I actually want to reassure listeners that there's pretty much no way we could make the earth as difficult to inhabit as Mars, let's say. That's a really, really good point. Do you think we will or that we can solve this as a species? Well, once again, you have to define what this is. Mm-hmm. Well, in terms I of mean, I don't a biodiversity think... crisis, can we, can we get it under some control or do you think it's gotten away from us at this stage? That's a really good question. I mean, since we did discuss these sort of cascading effects that you can presumably that you get in a time of mass extinction. And I I guess the question is, we don't know. We certainly have to act and should act uh, in the hope, in the faith hope that we can arrest these processes before they get completely beyond our control. But we're never going to sort of know at the moment whether that's the case, because, as I say, the, you know, we were sort of tinkering with or, or messing with very, very big forces that have a lot of feedback loops in them. And while you're in them, you know, people make the point that while you're in, for example, while you're in a moment of of exponential change, it doesn't necessarily look that way. Uh, at that moment, that line, you know, might still look look like a linear uh, 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 progression. So it's 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 pretty hard to tell in the midst of things. This is you know why we have this question of you know where are we in this process? Um, but obviously, you know, we do have to act uh, and hope that we can still arrest these some of these processes. And I think the one thing that we could do that would be, you know, a very simple thing. It's not very simple to say. It's very difficult to do. Is simply put aside a lot of space for other species that are going to. Some many species probably will be able to evolve and and migrate in response to the changes that we're sort of inflicting on them. But if we don't give them any space to move to, if we don't have sort of these migration corridors, if they don't have habitat, you know, to move to, then they won't make it. Well, that is so a, just simply putting, yeah, yeah. I'm I think, sorry. No, that's great. I think that's a really good focus to end on, and you know, giving us giving us something to know that we should be aiming for. So, my thanks to the author of the sixth mass extinction, Elizabeth Colbert, for setting us straight on what lies ahead and how we might prevent this asteroid of our own creation. Now, just a reminder that in a few minutes we'll be talking to my former News Talk colleague Ivan Yates, where believe it or not, he's back in News Talk studios to tell me just how green his life actually is. But first, continuing on with our dive into what it means now that the planet is in its sixth mass extinction event. I'm joined by Fintan Kelly, Agriculture and Land Use Officer for the Irish Environmental Network. Hi, Fintan. Welcome to the show. Hi, Kara. Thanks for having me on. 
Thanks for coming on. We've just heard from Elizabeth Colbert about the global mass extinction event that we're experiencing now on Earth. But where does Ireland fit into this event? And, and do we have reason to be concerned? Absolutely, yes. So we, we are without a doubt in the midst of a biodiversity crisis. Uh, this isn't just an issue that's happening in the Amazon or in the Serengeti. This is something that's happening all around us right now. So basically, yeah, we've we've been driving, uh, you know, biodiversity crisis, you know, since we first arrived in these shores. So I suppose the way we've engineered our landscape has had profound impacts on biodiversity. So historically, there would have been wide scale uh, woodland clearances, wetland drainage and persecution of species. So people probably wouldn't be aware that there's a lot of species that were once here that are now extinct. Uh, things like wild boar, wolves, goshawk, uh, common crane, osprey, all these species. But um, I suppose the crisis we're really at now is, has been evolving since the Industrial Revolution, uh, where, where kind of the rate of extinction has really gone up. And you know, the, the mechanization, I suppose, of farming and the industrialization of forestry and fisheries has really expanded the impacts we've had on our environment. And that's driven um, massive um, declines in biodiversity across the board, and particularly in the last 30 to 40 years. Can we quantify how bad this is in Ireland? Because we kind of know how bad it is in terms of the global picture with extinction rates. But do we know this information in Ireland? Absolutely. Yeah, we've, we've got some really good data on um, biodiversity loss here in Ireland. And I think people would be pretty shocked by some of the stats. So if, if we look at habitats, for example, across the board, um, we've got 85 percent of the habitats that are protected under the EU Habitats Directive are considered to be un, in unfavorable conservation status in Ireland. So these are habitats that are actually protected. These are site, you know, things that are protected within our Natural 2000 network of protected sites. Um, and for example, taking the example of raised bogs, only 1% of that habitat remains in a healthy, actively growing state. Uh, turning then to something like pollinators, which are so um, fundamental to how you know, our ecosystems function and provide important ecosystem services that provide food on our table. One third of Irish wild bee species are threatened with national extinction. If we look at freshwater ecosystems, uh, once common species like the European eel are now considered critically endangered. So they're actually considered by the IUCN to be more endangered than a species like mountain gorilla. Um, in the sea, a third of fish stocks in the Northeast Atlantic are critically overfished and considered outside safe biological limits. And then if we look at something like birds as well, which are so um, you know, ubiquitous and easy to study, um, it's alarming to find out that 63% of Irish bird species are ranked as high to medium conservation concern. So if 85% of our protected areas are in degradation, they're not that protected, are they? No, I suppose in, in the conservation world, we would say, you know, the, the, what, what we've got a lot of is paper parks. So things that exist on, on paper, uh, they're there, but they're not, they're, the protection isn't actually there. Um, I suppose the marine environment is a great example of that where we don't really have even paper parks. We've got, we've got almost no protection whatsoever for any species. Um, so, so that's where we're at, yeah. We've, we, we've, got, we've got protection in principle, but not in action. So you've painted a pretty bleak picture for us. Can anything be done to stop this? Absolutely. I mean, we, we have to. Uh, we are part of nature. So if, if, if we don't protect the natural world, we're in serious trouble. Um, I think that the message really is that conservation works. So in the past, when we've taken action, we've seen positive results. Um, I think the end of international whaling in 1986 is a great example. We've seen whale populations internationally rebound since then. And um, fisheries management is another one where we've stopped overfishing st uh, fish stocks. Unsurprisingly, they bounce back. Um, and a great conservation success story here in Ireland would be uh, the Rosie at Turns in Rockabill. 
there's been a conservation project management birdwatch Ireland there for a number of years and that's seen number of pairs go from at 180 in 1989 to that increase almost tenfold to 1704 uh, last summer so those are some kind of big projects and you know policy changes that could be made but i can imagine that listeners are feeling really overwhelmed hearing this news about a mass extinction event so what's something that i as an individual could do today to try and help this situation I think a, a, a lot of the policies that have dr- driven biodiversity loss um, are, are actually government-supported policies. Um, and I think it's really important that people kind of raise these issues. And if you are feeling overwhelmed, it, it's important to communicate that to your elected representatives. Um, I think as well, it's a great idea to, to join an environmental NGO. There's many great ones around the country doing great work, like Birdwatch Ireland, the Irish Wildlife Trust, Antashka. Um, I could go on. Um, if, if, if you wanted the Irish Environmental Network website, you'll see the whole list of our members and that are membership based. So that, that that's a tangible action people could take today that would make a real difference. Well, my thanks to Fintan Kelly of the Irish Environmental Network for giving us something to do today to deal with this mass extinction event. Up next, Ivan Yates will be telling me about his green life. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better future for all. Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. And today, my former News Talk sparring partner, Ivan Yates, is joining us in studio. Welcome home, Ivan. Great to see you, Cara, and congratulations on the second series. And taking over your seat now. Some (laughs) listeners may remember the years that we faced off against each other here in News Talk for the Down to Earth slot. Uh, And you hosted that as part of the hard shoulder. So let's have a listen to you reflecting on the one year anniversary of our slot, which was actually three years ago this week. And I have certainly learned a lot about plastics and about different things. And and the thing that that sort of um, both is an attractive thing and an unattractive thing is that it's almost as if this is a lifestyle, you know, it consumes your whole life. It's not just like I support Leinster or Man City. Like this takes, it, it affects everything you do, you know, from your clothes to the way you consume food to the way, you know, pesticides and everything like like this, the way you go to transport. Like, I, I don't think I'll ever be an eco-warrior. <laughs> Brings back memories, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, always with the punchline there. <laughs> I so I think listeners would probably be surprised to see you here talking about your green life. But actually, in the two years that we worked together on the hard shoulder, I came to the conclusion that you were actually greener than me. Well, obviously, obviously, uh, uh, um, I'm not saying that I've had a Pauline conversion, but there's two things. First of all, I need to kind of preempt what I say with a sort of apology, because when I was presenting on the hard shoulder with regular weekly contributors, there was two aspects, whether it was you or whether it was Tom Dunn on music or someone else on movies, there was the content that the contributor was giving. But if you weren't into the content, it was my piss take of the people who were making it. In other words, that you might tune in even if you weren't interested because I knew nothing about it. 
cared less and was completely sort of diffident about it. So uh, uh, I, I was, uh, shall I say, role-playing a, a kind of uh, devil's advocate of dismissive uh, tones, which probably wouldn't reflect uh, what you're talking about. So in the first instance, I would say that uh, there's a good chance that my carbon footprint is less than yours. I think there might be. Uh, first of all, I, I come up and down to Dublin from Enniscorthy. I always use the train or the bus. I rarely, rarely drive. So public transport is 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 a good thing. Uh, secondly, I'm wearing the same clothes I had 20 years ago. <laughs> so I'm recycling because I'm a cheapskate. And I, I therefore have a low footprint. And what really knocks it out of the park is that I don't fly. So therefore, all the extravagant air miles that all these eco-warriors are using, uh, Greta Gunberg and others, uh, I actually probably have a lower carbon footprint. Sanctimonious, <laughs> Ivan. So let us hear more about the, the flying, because that is the worst thing that we as individuals can do when it comes to climate change, and you don't do it, and you have even gone to America without flying. So That's tell right. us about That's that. That's right. Well, well I, I took off from Southampton. And over seven days, I eventually got to Brooklyn in New York. And after 16 weeks, I came back the same way. The only thing I could say that I offended against the environment was that my bar bill going out was $1,700. But other than that, uh, it was all it was all fine. No, it, it was slow. But as you know now, these huge liners are like hotels and they have so much entertainment. But after a couple of days, the novelty that No, I have an issue, A, with my back that I can't sit indefinitely. And secondly, long distance travel would be absolutely amphobic about it. So uh, I, 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 I'm using my eco-credentials, but really to do it something else. Yeah, well, if it's a health issue too, they're, they're very closely related in some ways. But I mean, are you an advocate of slow travel in terms of the enjoyment of it? Or if, well, if you could, well, would you prefer to fly? Advocate of public transport. I'm certainly an advocate. The reason I use the train is because I can stand up uh, from Rathdrum or Wicklow onwards or vice versa. But no, I, I actually believe in public transport. I've always believed in, you know, when I was working here, getting the Dart in, getting the 46A bus from Dunleary. I, I actually am a big fan of public transport and I think it works. It makes sense. It's smarter. It's more efficient as well as being more environmentally friendly. And of course, all of that will change. But I, I would submit that 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 perhaps in the last two years, since I've left News Talk in my business dealings, I have actually shown and revealed uh, my true environmental credentials. First of all, uh, I am... Um, a big fan of AWEA, the Wind Energy Association. Uh, I'm emceeing their award ceremony in Clontarf Castle on the 11th of March. And I'm a great fan of both onshore and offshore. And I really had a low tolerance level for all those who are objecting against uh, wind energy. Secondly, I have a very good friend and co-investor, uh, John Mullins in Amarenko, who I think is going to be the biggest solar player in Europe if not in the world. Now, obviously, that's less so Ireland. I know a lot of, of, of interesting things in terms of Southern Europe, where the sun shines in Italy and France and so on. And I'm a huge proponent of that. But I suppose the other thing is that I have kind of reconnected with my agricultural background. I, I, I started off in my first job as a, as a young farmer, as Minister for Agriculture, went to Gertine Agricultural College. And I've actually got quite involved with Devonish Nutrition. I I have been to Douth Hall, I've been to their peaty farm in Eclair, and actually I'm a bit of a zealot when it comes to the nitrates issue and the NPK issue. And, and there's a couple of manifestations of that. One is 
that the new multi-seed grass ward. In other words, that you have legumes in your thing, not just rye grass, uh, that you have clover, uh, all of which uh, 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 keeps the, the, the carbon levels in the soil higher and absorbs nitrogen uh, and has less CO2 and less methane. So that that is something I'm an absolute advocate of. And I've taken up a new role with a company called Agri Insider, which is very bespoke for the top end you know, I tend to be more premium and elite uh, <laughs> uh, these days. So basically, uh, you know, the top uh, 2,000 dairy farmers, beef farmers, breeding farmers, and I have been an absolute advocate of of how is agriculture going to re- reduce emissions by 51% by 2030. Uh there, there's some low-hanging fruit of things they can do better with genetics and with uh, grazing and different systems and uh, swords, uh, multi-use uh, uh, swords. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, there's there's a huge challenge facing the whole agriculture community. So let, yeah, let's talk about that for a yeah. minute because when I first met you, one of the very first things you said to me when I said, what would you like to talk about on this new slot? You said, well, don't touch cows. They're the most natural thing in the world. That was exactly what you said. And and now, I mean, more and more well, we're seeing... Of course seeing they are. The <laughs> I don't know how you well, think no, they no, are. No, I mean, there's zero graze farming and there's indoor dairy production, but there's nothing more natural than Ireland's advantage of a grass-based system. Yeah. Why are you sniggering? No, no, I thought you were going to say nothing more natural than a cow. But, uh, no, so, I mean, this debate between agriculture and environment is getting hotter and hotter. And there's, you know, carbon budgets looming and huge pressure. And you, you know, in your new job as media masterclass with Ivan Yates, you have said that agriculture needs to change its framing and how they portray their engagement with environmental issues. So what's their, what's your advice? Okay, well, specifically, I, I look forward to working in detail with, the Farmers' Journal, with the IFA, with other farm organisations and with Chagask. And uh, we've had direct contact. And I certainly think, you know the way the Labour Party under Tony Blair had to have new Labour? I'm for the new IFA and the new approach to agriculture because if you just preach to the choir, it tends to be ignored by the rest. And these issues now... Are, I mean, as you know, I, I'm not great on morality and my moral compass is the law. And 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 uh, the law has changed now uh, insofar as that these uh, emissions targets are set out in law. And, and therefore, this is actually not a, a whataboutery debate. What about Brazil? What about China? What about India? It's actually what about complying with the regulations. And therefore, I am all for adapting agriculture uh, to be more healthy, uh, to be more environmental. I won't agree with everything that you're going to ram down my throat, but I I, I, I have to say that the farming community needs to come more mainline in terms of public opinion because there will be a disconnect with a vegan, animal welfare-led, younger generation and you've got to meet that some way, halfway. And I hope to, to be involved directly in that. The intensification of the dairy sector in particular is what's driving our emissions upward when it comes to agriculture. Yes. So how do you think we resolve well, that the, issue? The, 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 the situation is, first of all, that the total national herd uh, may stabilise or drop because there's a significant decline in suckler cows. And therefore, uh, the increase in dairy cows, one may offset the other. But if you were to ask me in terms of a stick 
by 2030 because I actually don't have much confidence in politicians actually adhering to the incremental approach. What we're going to do is face a crisis in 2027 and the politicians before then will say, well, look, it's not on my watch, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, kick the can down the road and then it'll be more extreme. What I see is that that actually the worst case scenario for Irish agriculture is restrictions on the national dairy herd. Now, this is this is big money. I mean, we're talking about an industry worth 16 billion uh, with added value on it. And it's primarily an export industry. And it is it is in terms of the indigenous economy, absolutely a prized sector and asset. So this will be difficult, but I'd like to exhaust all the smart ways of having less nitrogen, ha- having more carbon measurement uh, and doing all the clever things with the forestation, which I'm also, back in the day, in 1995-96, I led the biggest forestation ever in the history of the state, a 20-year plan, with brand new resources. And I'm shocked to find that from felling orders and to plant, planting levels now, it's all gone backwards. It is actually at a standstill. They need someone to kick ass, Cara. Yeah, this this episode of Down to Earth, we've been talking about the mass extinction event that the Earth is experiencing right now. Mm. It's, it's driven by human activity. And, you know, you talk about, oh, we, we can offset our emissions in, in dairy by, you know, cutting the suckler herd. But actually, from a biodiversity point of view, intensification of dairy is really harmful to biodiversity. I know you love trees. I know you've planted a lot of trees on, yes. on your property. Uh, what is your view on how we square that circle between trying to address these climate targets but also trying to address this biodiversity crisis that we're feeling? Well, the, the, well one of the things that, that gives me great pleasure now living in Enniscorthy is that I have just outside my sitting room window uh, a couple of bird feeders. So I have jays and I have woodpeckers as well as chaffinches and sparrows and wrens and robins and all those things. So I actually, and, and on our farm, there's a preservation order. So there's wood pigeons and there's pheasants and there's rabbits as I walk around. So all that's fantastic. Um, put, put it like this, you know, how do you boil an, o- an ocean? One kettle at a time. You know what I mean? I'm sorry. You cannot You cannot do all these things overnight. And I hope that my role would be to help bridge the gap between, like, you know, dairy farmers' average income might be 80 grand, but uh, income for non-dairy farmers is at 12 grand. So uh, there are issues here that, that we need to... And that brings us on to the Greens in government and having understanding of those issues. Are they uh, doing a good job? Well, I, I, I put it like this. It's... It's, it's, I no longer stand in judgment of, of politicians, um, partly because I might be training them. But secondly, <laughs> uh, the, 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 the thing about it is that one of the things that I'm, I, so I'm, I'm involved quite a lot in construction now. Um, in building houses and getting planning permission in uh, going ahead with large-scale residential projects. And I have to say my tolerance level for objectors and the Green Party's level, uh, because I think a lot of these objections are spurious, in the middle of a housing crisis. So uh, other than housing, I think the Greens are doing fine, the individual ministers are doing fine, but I, I do think that we need a national effort to deal with the supply crisis in housing because it's become so unaffordable. A lot of my climate heroes like Mary Robinson and Al Gore say that they became more engaged in environmental issues when they had children or when they had grandchildren and you've recently become a grandfather. You have second grandchild. Yeah, yes, congratulations. Yeah, so absolutely. has that changed where you are on the spectrum of this uh, issue of sustainability? No, no I, I have to confess, Cara, I have a dirty little secret and that is that I'm 62 now 
And you know these milder winters, just the weather. I love them. I love them. So I just think for my time, I'm not I'm not saying that I'm a convert. But, but I put it like this. Once the law is established, once the benchmarks are there, I'm for how we can comply in an orderly and progressive way. So we can turn Ivan Yates into an eco-warrior if we simply <laughs> change the laws. Thank you so much to my former colleague Ivan Yates for coming back into studio and joining me on this edition of Down to Earth. And that is it for us. Thanks to my producer, Alex Rousseau. And thank you all for listening. Don't forget you can subscribe to the series on podcast at newstalk.com or on the Go Loud app. And next week we are flying or maybe cycling into the world of ecotourism. But until then, stay curious. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow today to shape a better future for all.